Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining me. Hope your weekend is going well. I want to get to many topics today. Uh, some big stories from the week. Uh, the new cover story in the bombing of the Nord Stream 2 uh, and 1 pipelines dropped uh, via the New York Times, uh, blaming a undefined pro-Ukrainian group. We'll talk about that. Then there was a, a really fascinating hearing in Congress on the Twitter files where Democrats just exposed um, how McCarthyite they have become in seeking to police speech they don't like, particularly speech that exposes their own prominent members' corruption. And finally, also in Congress, there was a vote on the U.S. occupation of Syria, which was defeated. And uh, that vote, I think, uh, has is very important for many reasons. It also tells us about how serious the U.S. really is to respecting sovereignty and territorial integrity, which they claim to be defending in Ukraine, all while overwhelmingly voting to violate Syria's sovereignty and territorial integrity by keeping U.S. troops there. So let's talk about that. I want to start first with Nord Stream. So I wrote about this this week on my Substack. Um, New York Times coming out with an article uh, sourced to U.S. intelligence officials saying that, okay, yeah, we finally have uh, our suspect in the bombing of Nord Stream. It's actually pro-Ukrainians. Uh, now, we can't give you any information about them. We don't know who they are. We don't know how they did it. Basically, we have no information, but all we know is that we think they're pro-Ukrainian. We think they're either Ukrainian or Russian nationals or both. And also, we know for sure it wasn't us or the Brits. And that's pretty much what the article was. And if you read my article, which I will link to in the show notes here, I go through just how ridiculous the New York Times article was. And also, this cover story uh, that also got planted in German media uh, about the boat that was really used was a yacht carrying six people, which is just insane for so many reasons. So... This is amazing because this is the butt with you, Cy Hirsch's reporting uh, that it was the U.S. that blew up Nord Stream. Uh, what a huge vindication for Seymour Hirsch that the best that they could come up with was, first of all, this ridiculous, vague story in The Times and then this equally ridiculous story in, in Germany, which, pretend, which purported to give some details. And I thought the previous strategy that they were, that, you know, the U.S. was following before the New York Times story dropped of just ignoring Seymour Hirsch basically and hoping it goes away. I thought that was from their perspective, the smart strategy, uh, just to basically ignore the story, trust in our reliable media, not to make a big deal out of it, uh, which was exactly what was going on. The Washington Post mentioned Hirsch's story once, but aside from that, it was basically a vow of silence. Like nobody else was pursuing the story. So I think that the White House had just continued with that, with relying on a vow of silence in the U.S. media to ignore Hirsch's reporting then uh, they wouldn't have had to do anything. And they could have basically gotten away with just saying nothing. Instead, they felt the need to respond. And they did it with such a ridiculous cover story that uh, now that brings attention on the story again. And it exposes um, that Seymour Hersh was right. Because if he was wrong, they'd be able to, A, debunk him, and B, come up with a counter narrative that is somewhat, at least plausible, which they haven't here. So, But let me talk about the role of the media here. And this is, I'm going to play a clip I haven't played yet. Um, in public. But this is the New York Times, uh, Julian Barnes, who's one of the reporters on the story. And by the way, it should be noted that um, two of the three reporters on this New York Times story have a history of pushing U.S. propaganda. Uh, they were involved in the Russian bounties scam in, in laundering that on behalf of the CIA. They, uh, they were involved in a story recently that blamed Russia for some mail bombs in Spain, even though Shortly afterwards, a suspect was arrested who has no ties to Russia whatsoever. He's a 74-year-old retired uh, Spaniard. Um, 
And, uh, and of course, uh, they were involved in, in pushing Russia gate lies too. So, I mean, that's important context to this New York Times story. But listen to this interview on the New York Times podcast called The Daily uh, with the host Michael Barbaro and one of the reporters on this story, on this Nord Stream story, Julian Barnes. And listen to how he explains in his telling how he, uh, him and his colleagues came across this new narrative that really the culprit for Nord Stream was a pro-Ukrainian group. In his telling, basically, he discovered it because before he wasn't asking the right questions <laughs> about who did it. And when he, when he started asking the right questions, he says he got the right answer. So, so here's Julian Barnes speaking to Michael Barbaro. So, Julian, who exactly was responsible for this attack and how did you and our colleagues go about figuring that out? Well, I think what happened was for much of the investigation, we weren't asking exactly the right questions. Hmm. And what were the right questions? Well, we had logically been focused on countries, mm -hmm. all those states that we just went through. Did Russia do it? Did the Ukraine state do it? And that was just hitting dead end after dead end. We note how he doesn't note how he, note how he doesn't say did the U.S. do it? It's either Russia or Ukraine. But anyway, we weren't finding officials who were telling us that there was credible evidence pointing at a government. So my colleagues, Adamantis, at Another revealing comment, he says, there were no officials telling us that there was credible evidence pointing at a government. So because there's no officials willing to tell you something, then that must mean it can't be true, right? We, we can only go along with what officials tell us. Uh, that's pretty much what he's saying here, I think. Adam Goldman and I started asking a different question. Could this have been done by non-state actors? Mm. Could this have been done by a group of individuals who were not working for a government. Kind of like freelance saboteurs. So where did you take this new question? Well, we started asking who might these saboteurs be, or if we couldn't answer that, who might they be aligned with, right? Could they be mm -hmm. pro-Russian saboteurs? Could they be other saboteurs? And the more we talked to officials who had access to intelligence, the more we saw this theory gaining traction. Mm -hmm. And my initial thought that this could be pro-Russian saboteurs turned out to be wrong. And we learned that it was most likely a pro-Ukrainian group. Hmm. So in other words, a group of people who did this on behalf of Ukraine, what, what do you learn that makes you think that's what happened? Michael, I should be very clear that we know really very little, right? Correct. You know very little because you're relying entirely on what U.S. officials are telling you. And he also now wants us to believe that that sort of the Times came up with this story through it on, on its own by asking the right questions. What actually happened was, they were fed this information by their intelligence sources, and they're just repeating it. And when asked, what information do you have to substantiate it? He has none, uh, because there is none, because it's it's been invented. This group remains mysterious, and it remains mysterious not just to us, but also to the U.S. government officials that we have spoken to. They know that the people involved were either Ukrainian or Russian or a mix. They know that they are not affiliated with the Ukrainian government, 
but they know they're also anti-Putin and pro-Ukraine. So, okay. All right. (laughs) That's enough of that. But you see what he's doing here? He's trying to claim that the Times came up with this story via uh, its genius idea to start asking the right questions. Uh, which is basically, well, okay, the, if the, uh, maybe there's, it wasn't a government. Maybe it was a group of freelance saboteurs. And all of a sudden, when we asked that genius question, wow, lo and behold, we got the right answer. Um, when in reality, they were fed this claim by U.S. intelligence and repeated it. And uh, also, they could avoid the real culprit, which, according to Seymour Hersh, is uh, the U.S. So what a vindication for Seymour Hersh to see all this. What an embarrassment for the times. And what a commentary on what journalism has become. That this is our pre- our premier U.S. newspaper, you know, uh, the paper of record, all the news that's fit to print, and these are the standards they apply to these consequential stories, such as who blew up the Nord Stream pipelines. It's amazing. Um, I I couldn't believe what a gift this was to Cy Hirsch, uh, and what a vindication this was of him. If I were them, I would have just simply ignored this story and hoped it went away. And by the way, it was going away because the previous weekend or a few days before the Times story. The German Chancellor Schultz was in Washington and Biden administration wisely didn't have a joint news conference because last time they did that, that's when Biden blurted out that he would stop the Nord Stream, the Nord Stream 2 no matter what. And so they had this private meeting. No reporters are allowed to ask any questions. And if you look at the media coverage, there was no talk really of Hirsch's reporting on Nord Stream. So it was working. But the Times was coming out with the story, put this back into circulation. And I think it's great because it's such a contrast between an actual journalist doing his job, providing a detailed account, uh, giving giving people information, and the Times, which just expects us to believe this tale, which has zero evidence and zero information. Uh, we're supposed to just take the word of unnamed U.S. intelligence officials that it wasn't us. That's pretty much what the story is. So what a week for that. Um, speaking of journalism, really amazing scene in Congress this week when the House, uh, the, the this new House committee formed by Republicans on uh, against the weaponization of the government, did a hearing on the Twitter files, and they brought in Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger. And the contempt that was on display from Democrats toward these two journalists was unbelievable. Um, basically, both Matt and Michael have reported on ways in which the U.S. government, especially via its, its intelligence agencies, have used social media companies to censor information and also to spread their own propaganda. That's Twitter files. And it's unequivocal, it's unequivocal evidence of that. Um, despite knowing often uh, that the claims that U.S. intelligence officials are pushing and the claims that, you know, um, think tanks and sort of so-called anti-disinformation groups are pushing, that they have no evidence, um, they're still forcing social media companies to go along with them, even when they admit they have no evidence for their claims. That's basically the message of the Twitter files. So instead of being concerned by the contents of the Twitter files, the Democrats on the committee basically tried to disparage the two reporters who are doing journalism about this censorship and propaganda. So here is the chair or the ranking Democrat on the committee, Stacey Plaskett. Uh, she is, she tries to accuse Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger of being threats to people. Mr. Chairman, I'm not exaggerating when when I say that you have called before you two witnesses who pose a direct threat to people who oppose them. It's just insane. So all of a sudden, Matt Taibbi is a threat to people because he's a he is reporting. He's a threat to people who support censorship. And the people who support censorship happen to be basically every Democrat that I've seen speak out on this issue, except for maybe Ro Khanna, 
But uh, as this committee displayed, they're very dedicated to this new reality we're in where U.S. intelligence officials and neocon think tanks funded by shady oligarchs have the right to police information online. And so, and when Matt Taibbi, in his very polite way, tries to correct Stacey Plaskett and you know, point out that he has a lot of journalist credentials because she called him a so-called journalist, um, she looked away and spoke to her aides as he was speaking. So this is what he said. That time was spent at Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, ranking member, that time was spent at Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, ranking member Plaskett, um, I'm not a so-called journalist. Uh, I've won the National Magazine Award, the IF Stone Award for Independent Journalism, and I've written ten books, including four New York Times, New York Times bestsellers. Uh, I'm now that time was spent at Rolling Stone magazine. So the whole time he's saying that she's speaking to aides and is checking her phone. Um, it's unbelievable behavior. And another member of Congress, another Democrat, Dan Goldman, he's a uh, heir to the Levi Strauss fortune worth something like a quarter of a billion dollars. So, you know, not bad. Um, he was also the uh, lead Democratic impeachment lawyer during Trump's first impeachment when they impeached him for, breezy, for briefly pausing some weapon sales to Ukraine. So great job, Dan Goldman. He's got a really stellar track record there and encouraging war with Russia. Uh, here he is berating Matt. Uh, for refusing to basically blindly accept the uh, the indictments by Robert Mueller of Russians for allegedly interfering in the election, there were two. There was the election. There was the indictment of some alleged Russian intelligence officers for hacking the DNC, and then there was the um, indictment of a Russian troll farm for putting out some dumb memes on social media. And Dan Goldman says to Matt Taibbi for daring to question these indictments, or at least daring to not blindly accept them, uh, then basically. He, he has no right to be weighing in on this issue of uh, free speech and social media censorship by the intelligence agencies. Is it your testimony here today that you disagree with the two indictments by special counsel Robert Mueller that definitively established that Russia interfered in our 2016 election through social media disinformation and a hack and leak operation? I mean, first of all, they did not uh, definitively establish anything. They claim that, but unless you live in a dictatorship, just because a government says something doesn't mean you accept it on faith. And, you know, the evidence that is presented in those indictments is full of holes, as I've written about extensively, um, especially the social media angle where the Mueller team was forced to admit that this troll farm that they were indicting, um, that they could not show any connections between the troll farm and the Russian government. And even, and even if they could, even if Vladimir Putin, you know, was responsible for every single piece of content put out by this troll farm, it would be a joke to suggest that that was a Russian government interference operation in the election because these were dumb memes that had mostly had nothing to do with the election. Uh, and uh, I've written about that extensively too, which of course people like Dan Goldman can never bring themselves to acknowledge. They never specify what they're talking about when they talk about Russian social media interfering in the election. Uh, because if they were to produce examples of what they're talking about, they wouldn't be able to because it's all dumb memes uh, and hashtags that very few people saw. No, I don't disagree. Okay, Mr. Taibbi, do you disagree with those two indictments? Well, indi I don't, indictments aren't a thing to disagree. Do you disagree? With. They're about 40 or 50 pages. Do you disagree with the evidence outlined in those indictments? Well, uh, indictments are just charges. When, when, I when just you asked you, do you disagree with the evidence included in those indictments? Yes or no? I'm not on the jury of that case. I couldn't possibly say yes or no. Okay, because you said earlier, I believe, that you did not see Russia, you, you could not confirm that Russia interfered in our election in 2016, that you don't believe that. Is that your testimony here today? You don't believe that they did? I think it's possible that they, they may have on a small scale, but certainly not to what's been reported. 
what's been reported or what's been included in the indictments? Well, again, indictments are allegations. They're not proof. And I understand it's pretty detailed allegations. In the Mueller indictment, by the way. You should go read the indictment and then come back and tell us if you actually think there's no proof of it. Well, let me move on. Some some of those indictments, by the way. Please, let me move on. That's how this works. You should know that by now. So do you disagree with the special counsel Mueller's conclusion in his report, Mr. Taibbi, that the Trump campaign knew about Russia's interference, they welcomed it, and they used it for their benefit? You have no reason to disagree with that, don't you? You have no information. So after that foreign interference... So, okay, Goldman is being deceptive or crafty here because, of course, the Trump campaign knew that Russia was accused of stealing the emails and giving them to WikiLeaks, just like everybody else knew that they were accused of that. Russia had no, uh, Trump had no inside knowledge that Russia had, had done anything. Because first of all, I don't think it's established that Russia did do anything uh, when it comes to hacking emails. But even if they did, there was no collusion between Trump and Russia. That's, we know that now for sure. Uh, and so basically, he's basically asking a question uh, that everybody knew. Everybody knew that Russia was accused of stealing these emails, and everybody knew that these emails would benefit the Trump campaign, obviously, if it makes Clinton look bad. So he's trying to make something nefarious out of the fact that tr- the Trump campaign thought that damning emails about their opponent would somehow help them. Of course it would help them, and everybody knew that, and the media knew that too, and that's why they used those emails in reporting, because they were damning and interesting. And uh, so Goldman's trying to make something nefarious out of that. And he didn't let Matt answer the answer when it comes to the indictments, because what Matt was trying to say was that if you're telling me that I need to blindly accept these Mueller indictments on faith, uh, it's hard to do that when Mueller himself dropped one of those indictments. Mueller dropped the indictment against the troll farm uh, after the troll farm fought back in court and started adding, started getting discovery. And when that started happening, the Mueller team dropped their own case. So Dan Goldman is asking Matt Taibbi to blindly accept the, the claims of an indictment that the Mueller team itself dropped. So even under his deranged logic that you need to accept all government indictments on faith, it doesn't even work because the Mueller team itself dropped that indictment, which, of course, he didn't let Matt point out because, he, you know, he, he cut him off and said, this is my time. So let's finish out the rest of this clip. Interference in our 2016 election, Twitter and other social media companies naturally wanted to work with the intelligence community to stop Vladimir Putin from interfering in our elections again. Mr. Taibbi, do you think it's a legitimate pursuit of the FBI to try to stop foreign interference in our elections? Again, sir, will I be allowed to answer this question or? or... It's a yes or no question. Do you think it's a legitimate pursuit of the FBI? It's not a yes or no answer. No, 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 no. I'm not asking how. I'm saying as an objective, do you think it's a legitimate objective of the FBI to stop foreign interference in our elections? I think it's a legitimate objective to stop actual foreign interference. Okay. Bam. And Matt nailed them there because that's the point. Uh, if it's actual foreign interference, which contrary to Dan Goldman's assertions has not been established. The one thing established here is that, yes, a Russian troll farm put out some dumb social media memes uh, on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Yes, that's established. But that is not actual interference in election because it had very little to do with the election. There was only a tiny percentage of content that had to do with the election. And if anybody wants to argue that these dumb Russian memes influenced a single vote, they should come out and show how. How did cartoons of Yosemite Sam and Jesus get people not to vote for Hillary Clinton and vote for Trump instead? And that's the argument you'll never hear people, someone like Dan Goldman make because they can't because they're using this to justify censorship. And that's why he's saying, don't you think it's legitimate for the FBI to try to stop social, you know, um, uh, uh, foreign interference in elections? And what he's saying is because 
uh, because there were some dumb Russian memes on social media in 2016, that makes it legitimate for the FBI to try to help censor reporting on Hunter Biden's laptop in 2020 when all they can say is that this might come from Russia. That's what he's saying. He's trying to legitimate censorship by pointing to the foreign boogeyman that Democrats are so invested in. So that was that hearing. And then there was another um, congressional uh, session where there was debate over a, a new measure basically to try to curb government censorship of social media. And listen to the rant of Jamie Raskin, who's um, you know supposed to be a progressive guy, but on on this kind of stuff, he's just become an unhinged neocon, I hate to say. And, and listen to what he said, arguing against this bill, which is trying to have some measures against social media censorship. About, well, the truth and lies. Who? One second, everybody. Um, one second. Okay. They're agnostic about, well, the truth and lies. Who knows what really happened? Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Well, they've got a perfect bill for you then. We call it the Putin Protection Act. That's what it is. The Putin Protection Act. Distinguished gentleman from New York explained Putin spent millions of dollars in 2016 to pump propaganda, electoral sabotage into our political system. He did. Every security agency in the country told us that. We got a bipartisan report from the Senate saying it. They're agnostic about it. They, when it comes to Putin, they see no evil. They hear no evil. None of it. No. But we know that it happened. Okay. That's Putin's plan. Why? Putin cannot beat America politically. He can't beat us economically. He can't beat us militarily. Putin can't beat us philosophically. There's one thing he's got, the internet. Why? Because we're a wide open country. And so he says, let's take advantage of it. Let's go on their social media platform. We'll put people who oppose Putin on the internet in jail, which they do. If you send a a tweet against Putin, you're going to jail. You you put out a tweet against his filthy imperialist war, which some of them support in Ukraine. You put out a tweet against that in Russia, you're going to jail. But he says, let's take advantage of America's openness. We'll take advantage of them, and we're going to put out propaganda. We'll lie about when the election is. We'll say it's on Thursday when it's on Tuesday. We'll tell people to go vote next week. All right. I mean, so look, it, it goes on, but it's just so deranged. And he talks, he says Putin spent millions of dollars in 2016 when, look, even if you accept that Vladimir Putin was personally responsible for the internet research, research agency's troll farm output, which of course there's no evidence for, but even if he was, the figure that was spent by the IRA was in the thousands of dollars and it was mostly on memes that had nothing to do with the election. So these are insane conspiracy theories fueling this McCarthyite mania where Jamie Raskin is trying to invoke the specter of Vladimir Putin to justify censoring social media at home. And this is unfortunately what, what the Democrats have become. It's the logical outgrowth of whatever, a seven-year Russiagate propaganda campaign where domestic elites use the foreign boogeyman of Russia to justify censoring any information that is damning to them, to silencing dissenting voices, and to justify militarism. That's what it's all about. This is a major disinformation campaign. You can hear in Jamie Raskin's voice, Jamie Raskin, who grew up a progressive, has had some progressive leanings, um, is supposed to be a nice guy. The complete 
cognitive capture of Democrats over to the McCarthyite side and not Kevin McCarthy, uh, Joseph McCarthy. Uh, it is quite striking. So that's that. Um, and finally, one more thing. Uh, the House defeated a measure uh, uh, proposed by Matt Gates, a Republican, to withdraw U.S. forces from Syria. And this is so funny because this is the same House that you know overwhelmingly votes to uh, fund the proxy war in Ukraine based on the principles of defending sovereignty and territorial integrity. Well, here they are rejecting any defense of Syria's sovereignty and territorial integrity and vowing to continue occupying Syria in the area, by the way, that happens to have Syria's oil and wheat, which the U.S. is stealing to keep Syria impoverished and divided after the 10-year dirty war. And so uh, just one clip. This is Congressmember Ryan Zinke talking about why we should not withdraw from Syria. The hard truth is this. Either we fight him in Syria or we'll fight him here. Either we fight and defeat them in Syria or we'll fight in the streets of our nation. Reminds me of a lot. Reminds me of a lot. A lot of when Adam Schiff said this, not about Syria and ISIS, but about Russia. The United States aids Ukraine and her people so that we can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight Russia here. And George W. Bush, of course, said the same thing about Iraq as well. So this is the bipartisan neocon playbook. We have to occupy foreign countries. We have to fuel proxy wars there. And if we don't, we're going to fight all of our adversaries over here. Um, I'm not sure if Ryan Zinke, who represents Montana, thinks they're going to come to Montana or not, or whether it's just going to be in major cities. But the point is, they're going to be here. ISIS is going to come over and fight ISIS and fight the U.S. in the streets here unless we occupy Syria over there. And of course, in reality, as I've written about, uh, the U.S. is not fighting ISIS at all. Uh, they're <laughs> sitting back in their bases, stealing Syria's oil and letting Syria and its allies fight ISIS. And ISIS has not, accordingly, has not attacked the U.S. Uh, in a long time. It's only been occasionally the U.S. occasionally does raids against ISIS. But by the way, where are those raids happening? They're happening in Idlib, which happens to be the Al-Qaeda safe haven that the U.S. helped create by arming the so-called moderate rebels who then captured Idlib with Al-Qaeda's help. And then Al-Qaeda took over Idlib um, as a result. So that is, that's that's how much the U.S. cares about fighting Al-Qaeda and ISIS over there. Uh, it's basically laying back and, and, and letting them take territory uh, and now using their presence there to justify stealing Syria's oil, which is their real motive. So that was quite something. And uh, it was good to see Democrats on the progressive side voting with Republicans who uh, were uh, also behind this bill. Uh, but it's the majority of Congress, which is the establishment wing on both sides that voted overwhelmingly to defeat the measure and to keep the U.S. occupation intact. Let's play one more clip because this is just funny. Gerald Nadler explaining why he thinks we should stay in Syria. We cannot withdraw our 900 troops now because of what was said about ISIS. But in addition to that, we are defending the Kurds against certain slaughter at the hands of the Peshmerga if we were to withdraw our troops. The Turks, as we know, are supporting Peshmerga. Okay. For those who don't know, the Peshmerga are Iraqi Kurds. Um, And yes, sometimes there has been some conflict between Iraqi Kurds and other Kurdish groups. But the Iraqi Kurds are not going to invade Syria to slaughter the Syrian Kurds if the U.S. withdraws. So he's just he, he he's mixing uh, the Peshmerga up with somebody totally differently. But it's just funny that he can't even in being so vocally against withdrawing U.S. troops from Syria to protect the Kurds. He can't even get the basics right <laughs> over who's a threat to who. So I just thought that was funny.
Um, okay, that's a long rant. Let us take some calls. Great to see so many people here. And I'm sorry to do this, everybody, but um, I'm going to exercise some privilege. And I see my friend Michael Tracy there in, in the call. So uh, I'm so honored that he would want to grace us with his presence that I'm going to make him speak. Uh, I'm going ha- to bring him up first. So, Michael, welcome, and uh, thanks for joining. You know, I figured for once I should try to use the call-in function of call-in. <laughs> I said, hey, well, you know, no, what yeah. better day than today when yeah, I get my better, notification yeah. from Aaron? I just click the little box and there I am. Yeah, and Michael, listen, th- I should have credited you. Uh, and maybe this is why you're calling because I did not credit you for that Jamie Raskin clip. But let me, let oh, me yeah, know. I was steaming about that. <laughs> that was your clip. And that honestly, that is... I mean, I say this a lot, but I really mean it this time. That is one of the – that's one of the most top three deranged things I've ever heard a Democrat say in this Russiagate era. I know. It's unbelievable. Like, there, there were several points throughout, like, I don't know, 2017, 2018, 2019, even on when – I almost remember saying to myself, maybe even saying to you, like, have we reached the peak of the craziness? Like, it can't possibly get any worse than this, right? <laughs> But then I would always try to kind of put it in perspective and assure myself that, yes, it obviously can get worse, regardless of whatever sort of high benchmark you think you've reached. And yeah, the, the Jamie Raskin thing, it was just wild. I mean, if, I don't know if you saw the other clips I posted in that thread, but I mean, I'm a real fan of Hitler analogies, as you know. Yes, yes, I know. And yeah, yeah. this freshman uh, congressman, Democratic congressman Greg Lansman, who... Oddly, and I forgot this even happened, but for whatever reason, I think given I think there was some redistricting or something, but he actually defeated a a Republican incumbent in Ohio of all places and got in the House um, this January, and he was saying, you know, remember everybody, we all have to be very keenly aware. We can't lose sight of the fact that Hitler did this. Like everything that Putin is doing, Hitler did. And so we need to really remember that. Like, that was the, the extent of the analogy? Yes. 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 Uh, I mean, hey, I mean, I, I'm of two minds on this st- stuff. Like, on the one hand, some of the rhetoric is just so overblown that you got to, on some level, at least hope that it's done for, like, theatrical effect. Um, but I think we're kind of like in enough of a death spiral at this point that like absent evidence to the contrary, I'm just going to believe that these people actually are sincere in what they're saying. Cause that, that actually goes a long way in explaining why it is that they're so like hyper zealous and can't be reasoned with. And every topic that comes up under the sun always just devolves into them shrieking about Putin. And now increasingly, which I think this is significant, Includes uh, additional shrieks about the Chinese Communist Party, which is what they intoned, just like Republicans did. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. They definitely believe this. I mean, and that's reflected in their actions. Like, they support censorship on social media. I think Ro Khan is the only Democrat who's, like, criticized the censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop story. Everyone else I've heard uh, speak on this from the, from the Democratic side has defended it. And then, of course, look at their policy in Ukraine. Um, total support for militarism. Total support for prolonging the proxy war. And even when some progressives like Jamie Raskin signed a letter calling for diplomacy 
after 24 hours, they all threw it under the bus. And Jamie Raskin said, we have to keep fighting Russia to defend LGBTQ rights. So um, there's, I do think that these are these people's sincere beliefs, and they're willing to put them into action now in really scary ways. The one thing I'll say about Raskin is it's like you can't help but feel I, – I, it's like it's not easy to make fun of him because he's going through chemo right now, right? And also he lost his son a few years ago to suicide. He's gone through a lot of personal tragedy, and I have to wonder if that is somewhat impacting his, his behavior. At the same time, though, before – you know, like, like before – all this happened to him. He was increasingly a neocon on all these issues. So it's not as if this is like if the result of personal tragedy. I just wonder whatever his own personal issues he's going through have an impact now on his. Yeah, his tune. I mean, of course, if you go through that dual personal tragedy with the son committing suicide first and foremost, but then also apparently whatever his cancer diagnosis is, you would expect that to have an emotionally destabilizing effect on just about anybody. But at the same time, he's still putting himself out there as a, you know, fire-breathing elected official calling for, you know, global military conflagration, essentially. So we got to take into account the things that he's saying. And I don't really recall him being less gung-ho prior to those that tragic period. Like, I remember... Remember when Max Blumenthal in 2017, like, oh, yeah. had this conference, funny confrontation with him at, at some rally and move on against, like, to support the Mueller investigation or something? Um, yeah, it's just uh, maybe he's getting a bit unglued. I mean, that wouldn't be surprising and, in fact, might be expected, but it's not really that inconsistent meaning like his performance of late is not inconsistent with what i recall from the period when he was not like undergoing this tragedy oh the thing that i wanted to mention to you as i was listening to you talk about the the hearing with with taibi because i just actually watched i hadn't seen the whole thing until uh, this morning i was pulling my hair out i felt like i was having like trauma flashbacks to that sort of initial year or two of russia gate <laughs> um because like all the same sort of annoying, unexamined premises get floated again, and are uh, you know, and you have like people like Dan Goldman badgering witnesses into just mindlessly accepting their phony premise. So here's a good example, right? All of a sudden, Goldman gets into this very serious and uncompromising, you know, prosecutorial mode where somehow. Matt Taibbi is like a criminal suspect or something, and he's on the witness stand and he's being cross-examined as though like that was the role he was supposedly playing at this hearing. Um, Democrats treated him as though, again, like he was uh, on the hook for some murder charge or something and was being uh, interrogated by a detective. Um, but Goldman did this whole routine that like some even like internet dopey personalities do where they'll, they'll say yes or no. Like you have to answer this question, yes or no, as though... Like, we're not just, like, talking on YouTube or something. It's, like, all of a sudden this dichotomistic uh, binary that you have to submit to and, like, just give a firm blanket yes or no answer to your, like, complex, multifaceted question. But Goldman did that, right, because it's, like, a bullying tactic. Um, and because he, he has the prerogative to say, oh, I reserve the balance of my time and, you know, you can't speak unless you're called upon. They're, like, petty tyrants in this little committee role where – it's like a teacher disciplining a student thing. Like, you can't speak out of, out of turn and, hey, I'm in charge here, buddy. And, oh, you're going to get time out and, like, I'm going to double your homework or something. But, he, but Goldman was saying to Tybee, 
do you agree or do you not agree that Russia interfered in the 2016 election through social media, something to that effect? And I just kept having flashbacks to this recurring sort of tedious, mind-bending debate that I would always have when that question would be posed in those terms, which is that I don't accept the premise of what you're calling interference. Interference is itself a propaganda term because it's so elastic. It's so amorphous. It's so like impossible to actually define in any tangible way that it can encompass like a million different things on like a huge spectrum of severity. So yeah, I mean, technically there's a way that you could argue that the social media bots, which may or may not have been derived from the internet research agency were in like some tangential sense interference, but I'm, I'm not then going to just sort of endorse or credit your characterization of that as interference because then I'm giving political credence to this broader claim that you're making. I just declined to do that, damn Dan Goldman, because you're a moron. He's, he's actually not a moron, unfortunately. He's smart and he knows how to like bully people in these sorts of adversarial yeah. um, dynamics. So, yeah, I mean, I just I, that that was that was really bugging me. But I know like if I was on the hot seat there, he wouldn't have allowed me the 10 seconds necessary to like make that point. No, so when, you just when could just change tried, the subject. When Matt tried, he said, he said, yes or no, sir. And uh, this is my time. Yeah. This is my time. And so when Matt, even when Matt tried to put, so Matt didn't have the time to point out like that the content of the alleged appearance was like moronic memes that nobody saw and went, and went about the election. He didn't have the time to say that. But even when he tried to point out to Dan Goldman that Mueller himself dropped one of his vaunted yeah. indictments. So these indictments that Goldman's insisting that Taibbi accept on faith wouldn't even let Matt point out that Mueller dropped one of them. Right. <laughs> so so it, it was just ridiculous. And uh, yeah, I, I, I had the same reaction too. Michael, uh, it's great to hear from you. Uh, thank you for calling in. Yeah, toss me right off the stage, Aaron. Toss, me, toss me in the garbage can, just like <laughs> you always do. That's what I'm doing. Only because <laughs> we have limited time and I got more people. Great to hear from you. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Yes. Hey, um, I see you have Philip at the end of the queue, and he was he was actually warned not to debate you on call in because you would you would mute him, and he and no one would know you were muting him because there's no video. So I just wanted to assure him that you would never do anything like mute somebody in a call and to beat them in a debate. You could do it on your own merits, right? I will mute someone if they're you know if they're inappropriate. Uh, yeah, if they're being rude or if they're insulting people, and if they or if they won't stop talking after a, like a prolonged period of time. But otherwise, no, I would not mute someone uh, just for disagreeing just for disagreeing with me. No. All right. Yeah, I just I just want to let Philip know that because I caught the end of a a certain YouTuber's live stream, and he had warned Philip that oh don't don't do this. You'll he'll mute you. He'll mute you. So I think you know who I'm talking about. I I don't know who. Uh, I I refer to him as a. Unfrozen caveman shit lib, but you might know him as Hal Sparks. Uh, Hal Sparks. Uh... Ex-host of Talk Soup. Yeah, that's not it's good you don't know of it. It's probably, it's probably better. He's trying to get attention, so. Okay, well, good for him. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, like, I, you know, like I said, anyone's willing to come by and, and debate if, they, if that's what they want to do. So I welcome it. All right. Well, good luck. Thanks. All right. Paul. All right. Paul. Hey, Aaron. How's it going, man? Hi there. 
So um, I guess my while I was listening, while while Tracy came back on, I kind of flipped my question, but I'm going to revert back to uh, uh, the Nord Stream thing, and I'm just wondering if if uh, um, you think there's any way it, if it's if it's a, a a possibility that you would think that there is a either if not a fracture, but maybe a chasm now in the intel community, particularly the CIA. With this whole, you know, seven-hour tour, Gilligan's Island narrative that they've got floating out there now, to to blame somebody else like Ukraine uh, for sabotaging the uh, the pipelines, um, and how ridiculous it is, and how it's basically falling flat uh, across the, you know, uh, sensible or logical or reasonable um, population um, that knows about the story. If you think that maybe. You know, knowing what we know of the CIA and, and the history, that they wouldn't necessarily not have a, a backup story prepared for you know a counter to let's say the the Seymour Hirsch type of a uh, uh, release, and whether you know whether or not you think that maybe there are factions within the CIA that are just kind of like shaking their head and thinking, oh, this is this is a complete and utter utter disaster. Hmm. Well, if, if you read Seymour Hirsch's original report, I mean, he pointed out that there are people inside the intelligence community who were not happy with the decision to blow up Nord Stream 2 and the way it was executed. So it wouldn't surprise me if those same people uh, are not happy with the cover story. And uh, I do think it's, of course, when you pull off an information like, like an operation like this, you probably do want to try to cover your tracks. So um, perhaps, for example, this German, I haven't looked into this angle too much, but perhaps this German yacht that they say is the one that planted the explosives. Perhaps, perhaps they did really go through a sailing around that time just to make sure that they could point to something as having actually happened on that date. That would and and now the backup that they're trying to you know throw in maybe a, a you know kind of a curveball here with this Greek Greek shipping uh, a shipping tanker or uh, oil tanker or something like that, putting it uh, with that I guess uh, I'm not sure GPS coordinates or um, uh, technology isn't what they labeled it. I think they call it something else where they placed that Greek shipping tanker, uh, oil tanker in that area at that time. <laughs> and, and they're just scrambling now, you know, and two what's different the, yachts. What's the, what's the point of that, uh, of that shipping, uh, container? Again, again, the whole point is to, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, create alternative scenarios to, you know, mess up or to, to confuse the public um, that it could be this, uh, this faction or it could be this faction or the Ukrainians may have hired this, this oil tanker and placed it there to do it. Because, because the narrative, the original narrative with the original yacht and the six people and, and uh, uh, on that particular yacht seemed so ridiculous on its face that you couldn't possibly, you know, uh, carry that type of explosive uh, equipment, the explosives themselves, you know, under that weight and all the equipment required to actually, um, you know, provide the divers with the type of uh, support that they would need to actually do this, if they were even that <laughs> even capable of doing that kind of a dive to begin with, which, you know, at that depth is completely unrealistic to begin with. Yes. Um, for example, 
to do that kind of dive, you need to uh, undergo decompression, right? And could that yacht mm-hmm. facilitate decompression? I, you know, I mean, I don't know. I'm not, <laughs> not to my knowledge. Uh, the story, uh, it's, it's amazing uh, that this is the best that they can come up with. It still blows my mind. Yeah. Thanks a lot, um, Eric. And thank you for the call. Okay, Jeff. Hi, can you hear me? Hi there. Hi. Um, yes, I haven't called in for a while, but I've been listening to the show intently over the last uh, few weeks. Um, I just, uh, it's interesting what you said about, um, you know, what the uh, uh, Raskin said about the Kurds, because uh, the situation in Kurdistan used to be even more uh, complicated uh, back in the 1990s, because uh, you may have heard of a an, a, an air base in Turkey called Injilik, and in southeastern Turkey, and um, U.S. planes in the 1990s used to take off from that air base to police the no-fly zone, the northern no-fly zone over uh, northern Iraq, uh, and at the same time, Turkish jets were taking off to bomb the taking off from that airbase to bomb the uh, Kurdish communities in southeastern Turkey. So, and that was happening at the same time throughout the 1990s. So it tells you something about, you know, the West relationship with the Kurds, if you like, and how treacherous it's been. Um, On the issues, I I just wanted to make two points. Um, One is uh, when it comes to, I mean, we live in a world where the mainstream, you know, the Western mainstream media is literally more, uh, more, more likely to consider Russia was behind the bombing of its own pipelines than America was. I mean, that's, you know, the corporate media that we have. And it's confusing because even on, you know, uh, the, the war in Ukraine, I find it so uh, just impossible to follow, really, because, I mean, t- take the battle around the town of Bakhmut. I've listen to plenty of news sources where they refer to it as a highly strategic town. But I've listened to just as many who say apparently it's of very little strategic value. And um, people don't seem to agree what the casualties of the war are. Some people say Russian troops have, I think, uh, suffered about 10,000 to, 10, 10, to 20,000 uh, losses. I've heard other people say it's in the hundreds of thousands. You have people like uh, Colonel Doug McGregor and Scott Ritter who say that Russia's winning the war and, you know, the Ukrainians are losing. And then you switch on the mainstream news and they say, no, it's catastrophic for Russia. I think this has got to be the hardest to follow war that I can remember. People don't even agree on the most basic facts. You know, what I mean, it's 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 almost impossible for me to follow. Yeah, I think you're right. I, but I think you have to use your own sense of um, logic and, and common sense. Um, would it make sense to you that Russia has taken such huge losses when it has, as everyone acknowledges, more artillery and has more sophisticated weapons and has more soldiers? Um, it, it just doesn't make sense to me that Russia would be taking more losses than Ukraine. I, I could see it as maybe being equal, uh, given that it's Russia that is being offensive and Ukraine that's being defensive. Um, that would make sense. But again, yeah. um, I, but I agree, it's impossible in the Western media. I mean, for example, like Bakhmut, the town of Bakhmut, like we hear, first we heard it was very strategic. Ukraine had to save it. And then when Ukraine starts losing there, all of a sudden, eh, it's not strategic. It doesn't matter. 
Um, so it, it, I agree. If you're a Western media consumer, it's very hard to get the facts. And uh, in terms of casualties, I have no idea. I don't see how anyone can make confident judgments sitting from the outside. Uh, but uh, that's just me. Uh, thanks, Jeff, for the call. Joe, and to, here's the thing, everybody. Because I have limited time, I'm going to – I understand – so his, uh, is it Philip who's called in to debate? So because I don't want to miss out on a debate, I'm going to move Philip up to earlier. So I will take him after the next caller just so we make, just so we make sure we have time for a debate. And I apologize to everybody who might not get uh, to speak because of that. But, uh, you know, a debate's always welcome here. So we'll do that. Okay, Joe, go ahead. Hey, Aaron. I have had a busy couple of days, and I'm coming in hot, man. Okay. All right. So I was at the uh, Boston launch of Worker Strike Back yesterday. Yeah. It was friggin' pretty awesome. Great speakers. Um, and I uh, got to hear from a lot of people who basically told me that I have a, a bomb rolling through my town. Okay. So that's a, that's a little unsettling. Uh-huh. Um, they had people from the RWU there, um, people from nurses unions spoke up and, you know, it was good. It was great. Um, and I walked away invigorated. So that's awesome. Now today, <laughs> uh, I don't know if I, Jim McGovern's my rep. So it sounds like it may sound like I've got an ax to grind, but I'm, you know, just doing my best to try to hold him accountable. Uh, ever since East Palestine, I've just been peppering his voicemail and asking his staff for, you know, some kind of acknowledgement that it's, uh, some, and a, a concern that he's addressing. Mm -hmm. Some, some sort of even symbolic acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten nothing. Hmm. Now, uh, that's voicemails. That's talking to various staff. I'm, I don't know if you're fine with me naming names or, what have you, but, uh, I've been hung up on, um, at, but today I got, I got assurance from somebody that they're going to call somebody <laughs> and they're going to reply to me maybe around Tuesday, I hope. Um, but I've been basically, and I hope, and that's something, this is something you may know, like, because that staffer seems completely clueless. Uh, do they record incoming calls from constituents? It seems like an obvious answer. They they should, right? For like SecOp or records. Uh, that's a great question. I don't know the answer. I but I also would. I wonder if there's a privacy thing. Yeah. Uh, and um, um, so yeah, know, this I, person was unaware if they did or not. Yeah, yeah. Because I otherwise, I I would love to be able to get access to the converse, like the phone calls I've had. Right. Uh, I'm sure you can find that information online. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I just, I want to dig in a little bit further and just try to connect some dots. And I, I, um, and I have enough, I have requested an official statement from McGovern's office, um, from him regarding this. So if I get that, I'll, you'll be the first to know, man. Um, but the shoot i am i apologize i kind of lost my train of thought so i suppose that's everything for now okay but, uh, well, joe i mean uh, you know great to be persistent with elected officials on the issues you care about and uh shoot. Sorry, you know, i got it yeah oh uh when he was a freshman in the in congress 
Mm-hmm. That was coincidentally right about the time that Obama deregulated the uh, classifications or something like that. I wonder how he voted. I wonder if he's feeling a little bit guilty, and that's why he's not getting back to me. I can right. only speculate, but again, it's public knowledge. I'm almost afraid to look because if I know for a fact that he voted to deregulate that, man, mm. that's that's tough because he's got a, his family has a business literally right across the street from um, uh, the the railway that yeah. passes through that carries freight that carries these rolling bombs. The RWU guy, RWU guy, basically told me about. So, all right, that's it. Thanks, Joe, for the call. Yeah, sure thing. Take care. You too. All right, we'll take Philip next. Hello, Philip. And Philip, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Hi, hi, Aaron. I appreciate you uh, uh, giving me the opportunity to discuss this with you. Uh, I'm calling you from uh, Slovyansk in Ukraine currently. Um. I was on the, uh, I was just at uh, Chasiv Yar. I, I was listening to your previous caller uh, expressing some concern about uh, getting proper information <clears throat> outside, out of, uh, out of Ukraine, in particular, this Bakhmut battle. Um, you know, there's, I, I was just there on the front lines um, or just outside the uh, encirclement area. Uh, I mean, there's a lot to unpack when it comes to Bakhmut. Uh, I I think it's entirely possible that Ukraine is going to lose it. I think uh, Russian uh, forces may actually take Bakhmut. But in the time that I spent there, um, I saw, you know, uh, pretty high morale amongst the Ukrainian troops who were in the kind of staging area, uh, preparing secondary defensive lines uh, if the Russians do indeed take Bakhmut. So, I do not think, even if they do take Bakhmut, um, the reason why there's this this discrepancy between whether Bakhmut is important or not is because, yes, Bakhmut is a kind of area where you can launch, uh, you know, there's there's roadways going north, south, and west, but you can say that about a lot of towns in, in the region. So um, if they take Bakhmut, they will go to Chasivyar, which is where I was yesterday, and they'll run into the same problem again. I mean, this is this is going to be a very difficult battle for for Russia. And, uh, you know, both sides are losing an awful lot. But I wanted to call in because I'm taking it on faith that you're acting in good faith. And I wanted to get the opportunity to maybe correct you on a few things that I think you get wrong about the Ukraine war. Okay, go for it. Well, I mean, um, first and foremost, the Nazi narrative. Um, I live here in Ukraine. Uh, well, I live here now since the war began. I've been coming here for 22 years. Um, there are Nazi elements here. Absolutely. No doubt. I do not wear rose-colored glasses when it comes to Ukraine. But, you know, I would argue that, um, you know, Ukraine has as many, proportionally as many Nazis as you would find in America or in Britain or indeed in Russia. So the argument that this is a battle to denazify uh, Ukraine doesn't hold water with me because, you know, would you would you be okay with bombing San Antonio because of Charlottesville or the or the Proud Boys? I mean, that's really what we're talking about here. By and large, Ukrainians are not Nazi sympathizers. Um, they just want to live a normal life. Uh, they lean towards a liberal democracy because uh, they have been living under autocracy and they really don't want to live under Moscow's thumb anymore. They would like to forge a different future. Um, that's really what this is about. And 
you know, when you hear talk of like uh, Russian nationalist or sorry, Ukrainian nationalists within, say, the Azov Brigade, you have to understand this is more aligned with like Irish nationalism against uh, British imperialism. Um, these people believe that there should be a nation state called Ukraine. That's that's what Ukrainian nationalists are. And Russia knows this very well. And they 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 use that against the Ukrainians. And there's a an incredibly strong uh, intelligence warfare uh campaign being launched by uh, the Russians. And they're very good at it because they study us um, pretty much exclusively. The Anglo-American enemy, as they see it, is their most important enemy. So they they fixate on that. And they're very good with information warfare. So I've been victim to it, of, of it myself in the past. So there's there's no shame in it. But it, it's this is not a Nazi nation. And it's there's no there's no significant representation of far right or Nazi elements within the Rada, you know the the Bandera mythology is is very complicated, and I am not a Bandera supporter, uh, along with many other Ukrainians who I talk with. Um, you know, Bandera is a very complicated issue because his story has been manipulated by the Russians. I mean, if if for example, uh, you know, the Sons of Liberty had lost their battle against King George, do you think we, that we would revere? You know, there are founding fathers the way that we do. I mean, the victor gets to choose the narrative. And so they've manipulated clearly Bandera's um, history, not to say the Bandera. Okay, well, look, I mean, the, the Bandera history doesn't concern me as much. I mean, to me, he was a Nazi collaborator, but whatever. Uh, that's, that's in the past. I, I'm concerned with the present. So let me address what you said about the role of Nazis in Ukraine. Uh, see, there is a straw man here. Uh, people who I think share my argument never say that the majority of Ukrainians are Nazis, that uh, the political parties uh, that are in power are Nazis. What we said is the the neo-Nazi and far-right nationalist forces have a disproportionate level of influence inside Ukrainian politics, owing to their role in 2014 when they were instrumental in the coup or the revolution, whatever you want to call it. I'm sure you'd call it the latter. Um and owing to the fact that they were on the front lines of the war of the last eight years in the Donbass, like such as Azov and all, That's and all, not... and all these other. So, so hold on. And so it's just a fact yeah. that, and again, I take it, I take it as a starting point, for example, things like I can read in Foreign Policy magazine in March 2014. This is a line I quote often. It's written by two Western specialists with Western think tanks. And they say, the uncomfortable truth is that a sizable portion of Kiev's current government and the protesters who brought it to power are indeed fascists. And what they're saying there is not that the majority of the people of Ukraine are fascists, but that the people who were the muscle behind Maidan and then were appointed to top posts after the Maidan succeeded in, in the coup were fascists. And the groups like Azov and Right Sector, which have fascist and neo-Nazi origins, uh, even if numerically they're not very powerful, they play – that's the whole point. Due to their muscle – they have a disproportionate influence over policy. And that's why, for example, someone like the co-founder of Right Sector can, hang Zelen can threaten to hang Zelensky from a tree if he pursues the Minsk Accords, and then two years later gets appointed to be an advisor to the top Ukrainian military commander. So it's not a question of their numerical size. It's a question of their influence. And that's the point that I'm making. And I've never said that it justifies a Russian invasion. I don't think it does. But I'm also not going to pretend that that, that that influence is there. 
Yeah, and I, and I hear what you're saying. I would argue, however, that a lot's changed since 2014. I mean, in 2015, uh, not nearly a year after the Maidan, uh, Poroshenko outlawed uh, on the, the presidential uh, administration of, of Pyotr Poroshenko, outlawed Nazi symbology in all armed forces and, and also Soviet uh, uh, symbology. And it was, it was such a, a, a contentious uh, yeah. uh, event that um, there were running street battles uh, between the Azov and private sector and the government forces in which people actually died. Now, the, the, the Poroshenko uh, administration won those battles and, and subsequently broomed out uh, a lot of these extremist elements. In, in, in fact, having been on the ground here and been around Azov uh, before, uh, you know, they, the extremist Nazi kind of ideology has absolutely been, been swept out of there. They are nationalists. Yes, absolutely. They are nationalists. But again, I, I iterate that they are more in line with Irish nationalism than they are with, you know, kind of what we, when we hear nationalists in the English language and with the history of, of, of nationalism, we get concerned. But I, I would argue that these are people, you know, I mean, this has been going on for hundreds of years. You have to understand well, that this, this conflict would, is not like a result to, of NATO. Yeah. I would liken that to a different uh, conflict zone, which is Syria, where in Syria, Al-Qaeda changed its name a few times and changed its logo. But that to me was just a rebranding. It's still the fundamentally the same core ideology. And I've still seen, by the way, Nazi insignia uh, up to the present moment. Um, the Azov symbol still has its roots in Nazi iconography. Uh, and you see people, which was which a, was appropriated from Vi- oh, which was appropriated from Viking iconology. Just, just one second, and there was an incident too where even you had that. I mean, there are many examples of this, but for example, there was a bodyguard close to Zelensky with some sort of fascist or Nazi symbol on his uniform, and the Zelensky uh, government put out a picture of them on Telegram or something, but then deleted it. And that's how, there are many examples of that. So I can't. I mean, listen. I'll be honest with you. I didn't know that uh, it led to battles back in 2015 when, when the uh, when there was that move made against Nazi insignia. I didn't know that. So so, so thanks for bringing that to yeah, my well, attention. Yeah, well, I'm glad. But, I, I'm, see, this I, is why I wanted to talk to you. But I don't. But I don't. But, but my point is, I don't think that that uh, effort was as successive was as successful as you say it is. Because again, you still have groups like Azov. And well, again, I'm here pl- pl- playing a dominant role, just as. And Al-Qaeda in Syria, just because they changed their name to Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, to me, they're still Al-Qaeda. Well, fine, but, you know, the IRA had Sinn Féin. I mean, I don't, I, I, I think, I do not agree with you about the Syria analogy. I, I think I'm comfortable, far more comfortable with the, the Irish uh, versus British and Irish nationalist movement. Uh, I, I, again, and I'm here, so I have an advantage over you, Aaron, that, Respectfully, uh, I don't that's no slight on you. I, I mean, you I would have to actually to, be here. Yes, yeah, sure, it's true. I, you're right about that. I'm not there. You are, but I don't equate uh, uh, Irish nationalists with Nazis. I think they have different ideologies. Irish nationalists are concerned with preserving their. Well, that's my point. Yes, that's my so, point. The, the Ukrainian yeah, we're, nationalists we're, who are here are actually right. fighting for a nation state called Ukraine, which has been denied them 200 years. I got that, but also these are people who believe that they need to wipe out, uh, you know, uh, the Russian presence inside Ukraine. That's how their nationalism takes hold. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, well, you know, when, when Russia conducts genocide inside Ukraine repeatedly over a period of, as I say, 200 plus years, 
you could see why there might be some resentment towards you uh, Russians. But, you know, at the same time, those very same people that you are saying uh, are, are, are anti-Russian and, and want to whatever you think they want to do with Russians. And, I, and, and look, I'm fully I'm willing to admit that there is a huge anti-Russian uh, sentiment here on the ground in Ukraine. And I, I can you know, I think you can probably guess why. But there's also, you know, there are Georgians, there are uh, there's uh, LGBT, there's uh, people of color. Uh, you know, there's a there's a there's a bill in the Rada right now for same sex marriages. You won't even find that in places like Poland. They're leapfrogging yeah, other yes, Eastern European nations in their I pursuit that, of liberal democracy. Yeah, I, I know that Ukraine does have a pluralistic component to it. What I'm saying is, though, these far right groups and Nazis still have a influence over politics and a major role in it. And for example, look, it's like these, these are not just people who don't like Russia. They're people like Andrei Beletsky, the founding commander of Azov. And, and what did he write? He said, Ukrainians are a part of one of the largest and finest of the European white race. And he goes on to say the country's mission is to, quote, lead the white races of the world in a final crusade against the Semite-led subhumans, all to achieve the race. Yeah, and Belitsky, Belitsky was... He, he's the founding Belitsky was kicked out. Yeah. Yes, and he was kicked out of Azov. He was kicked out of Azov and now he's in exile. Right. But you don't think that the, that the ideology of the founder... Will have an influence on the group. Uh, I, I no. In this particular instance, in this particular instance, no. Because I'm, 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 I am surrounded by. Are I have, you aware? I have witnessed are, you aware of, are you aware of groups like Azov? You know, rounding up gypsies. Yes. And yes, and and beating them. And, and oh, am I aware of them rounding up uh, gypsies? I mean, that may have happened in the past. It's not happening currently. Well, I've even heard reports of that happening during this war of of, of hate incidents like that. So, look, we're going to disagree on the role. I'm sure of- that there are. I'm sure that there are hate incidents happening, but by and large, uh, the the far right and the Nazi elements have been massively marginalized here. And there, but there is a huge Russian information campaign to to beef that up because, of course, it's not only for international consumption; it's also because of the of the religion that the Second World War is within Russia, that they can instill within their own people, hey, we need to finish this fight in the Second World War that wasn't finished, and, you know, Ukraine is filled with Nazis. Uh, there's, a, there's a distinctive effort being done by the GRU and other intelligence uh, organizations within Russia to beef this, this idea that the place is rife with Nazis who are calling all the shots behind the curtain. And it's simply- okay. And what I'm saying is, and what I'm saying, just because Russian propaganda has taken advantage of the existence of Nazis to justify their invasion, it doesn't mean that there aren't Nazis in Ukraine who are a problem. Um, and I do think, I guess we'll disagree on the extent to which they play a role. To me, when you have a, when you have a neo-Nazi battalion, the Azov, formally incorporated into your military. And they're well, they're the not front- neo-Nazi. Well, they're not they were, neo-Nazi. They were founded. They were founded by in 2014. Nazis. Okay, in 2014. So, so then we have different. And we're subsequently and we're subsequently and subsequently have dealt with through, by a law they, by the Perestroika regime through, in 2015. Have, have they gone through some kind of uh, special denazification training? They have been vet. Yeah, they've been workshops? vetted. Yeah. Okay. Well, see, that's yep. where I don't agree. Oh well, no, them. not workshops. They're act. They're actively when they find people, uh, they're they're removed from service. And what, what I would say is when they find people who are too maybe embarrassing and how Nazi they are openly, they get maybe they get removed. But I don't think that solves the problem of a neo-Nazi battalion uh, drawing in Nazis. And um, 
that's well, why you have Matthew Delfer taking But they're not. Okay, well, that's your opinion, um, and and we'll disagree on that. Well, and I'm here, and I'm here, and I and I have better knowledge. Well, do you think every other person in Ukraine would agree with you? Because I know many people in Ukraine who don't agree with you. So just no, no, absolutely. This is a very, very, this is a very, very uh, controversial uh, topic, even internally within Ukraine. There's deep sure. concern about it. Yeah, uh, which is why, which is why this issue is being dealt with. Okay, in your opinion, but. Uh, I'm, unfortunately, I can't take your word for it. So maybe we'll leave that issue to the side about the role of you know Nazis and fascists. I've heard your I've heard your point there. Uh, is there any Is there any other issue that you want to address? Well, I mean, there's the only other issue is the Nord Stream issue, which of course is so prevalent, and I, and I am not going to get into a debate about right, wrong, or or what have you. I I have some concern about Hirsch's uh, article. Not to say that I don't. Uh, think that there is a distinct possibility that it's true, but um, I just hanging it all on one unnamed source is problematic for me. Um, I, I I have sources within Russia who say that, and again, let's keep in mind, Russia is not a monolith. Uh, there are, you know, different factions within uh, Russia, and there is there is motivation for Russia having blown up Nord Stream itself. I'm not saying they did. I'm saying we don't know, and I, I would like very much to see a full investigation, including the uh, information that Gazprom may have, because when Gazprom was selling Nord Stream 2 to the Baltic and the Scandinavian uh, uh, states because they were rightfully concerned there might be a leak, they insisted that you know it would be the most monitored pipeline in the world and every inch of it would be, would be covered with monitoring systems. Um, and we haven't seen that. So either, and it's entirely possible they were lying to the Baltics and the Scandinavians. Um, but if not, uh, why have we not seen Gazprom's uh, you know, data? Um, I'm not saying the U.S. didn't do it. I'm saying we need to have more information. And I don't want to hang everything on Seymour Hersh's single article with a single unnamed source. That's a totally reasonable position. Uh, personally, I have more faith in, in Seymour Hersh than you do. And that's my bias because I, you know, I'm a big fan of his based on his his track record but i get well, that I, uh, I, yeah. yeah no i, I, I also find you... it interesting because i worked i worked with 60 minutes when uh 60 minutes in conjunction with the new yorker was breaking abu Ghraib. Uh, i did not work with hirsch i worked with mary mapes at 60 minutes and they were incredibly meticulous about every t being crossed every i being dot, dotted and the the article that hirsch put out about Nord Stream 2 doesn't seem to have the same amount of due diligence that I saw happen during Abu Ghraib. Okay. Well, uh, that's your opinion. I mean, I, I've written about this. I don't need to rehash my views on this here because I've written about it a lot, but uh, I appreciate you coming to share your perspective. Okay. Thanks. For Thank you very much. Eric. All right. Take care. All right. Okay. Sterling. Hey, Aaron. Okay. So I'm going to not even talk about Ukraine for once. We all know very well if you've been paying attention, how I feel about that. Um, this whole thing, you know, I just, I've been following Matt Taibbi since 2008. Like, I almost feel like I know him because he was just my go-to for sanity since then. And I feel like, you know, people who do follow Matt, um, we've been really put through hell with, you know, everything from what the Democratic Party has done. And I thought this trial, you know, it just was so typical. It was so well cast. It was so well scripted and rehearsed. Um, and putting forth uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the woman responsible for one of the biggest assaults on a democracy to rig a primary. Um, 
to defend a party flouting the Constitution, the People's First Amendment, was perfect. It was despicable. It was everything I expected. Um, the only thing that gave it balance was how um, Matt and Michael handled it. Like, I can't watch them do that to him, as ridiculous as they were. But they were they just seemed ready for it. The way he was smiling, um, so decorous. Um, he really showed them to be, in my opinion, what they are. And... Um, just really willing to flout the constitution. And we've known this for a while and it's almost like they expect you to be afraid to say it, but you can't deny it at this point. And um, yeah, so I get really upset if anybody's going after Matt because he did take the time also, you know, when I hear like Emma Vigman, Viglin or whatever her name is, and you know, some of the boutique people just going completely crazy right now. I'm like, you know, Matt and, and talking about Matt. And I'm like, he is a real journalist. And he wrote a book after the crash in 2008 for people like me, he took the time to do that to try and simplify what exactly happened in that crash. Because when you listen to the media, it was so, you know, convoluted and completely crazy. Can't dazzle, dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with bullshit thing. And, um, you know, so I really get offended when they go after a journalist like Matt Taibbi, because I do think he really cares about the Constitution. I think he is a First Amendment absolutist. And I just believe what he says. And like anything else that goes here. Um, we're going to have people who agree with that and people who aren't and uh, like we just experienced, but um, I'm glad you're not here to have an echo chamber. And I thought you handled that probably how Matt would have uh, Matt Taibbi. So anyway, kudos to you, Aaron. And thank you so much. I'm glad that's over for them for now. Thanks, darling. Thanks for the call. Yep. Okay. Scott. Hey. Hi there. Okay, Scott, unfortunately, you're breaking up, so, yeah, you're breaking up, so I have to move on to the next caller, but try to get back in the queue, and maybe that will fix it. Okay, Jason, go ahead. Hello, Aaron. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can. All right. Okay, I'm, I'm having a problem hearing you, too. Um is I wonder if this is an issue with me. Is are other people having a problem hearing Jason? Maybe uh, let uh, let me know in the chat. Anyone hear me? Okay. Yeah, I can. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. All right. Well. Hey. Uh. So. Faith and like the main. After seeing what they did over the. Like everyone just full. Uh, say it again. Say it again. Say it again. Media falling in line that Russia blew up the North Stream. I mean, Jason, I apologize, but I, I can't really hear you. And I, maybe it's my fault, but I have to move on to the next caller uh, to see if this really is my issue or not. Okay, Peter, go ahead. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. That's cool. Yeah. Okay, I'll be quick. So uh, coming domestic, uh, coming domestic a little bit, why no journalists cover the non-prosecution of Hunter Biden? Because uh, here's my theory. Uh, back in Hillary Clinton's uh, email server uh, situation, the DOJ FBI says it's not it's a practice not to prosecute a someone in the election. In this case, Hillary Clinton. So they let her go. So Hunter Biden's uh, laptop shows up in 2019. So Joe Biden is running for president. So we are not going to prosecute Hunter Biden now. About three or four years, and his crime looks like a uh, pretty straightforward. Why nobody's talking about the, why there's no prosecution yet? Is it trying to protect a, a political candidate for president? 
why is there no prosecution of of Hillary Clinton yet? Is that what you're saying? No, no. Hunter Biden. He's in the same. I'm sorry. Uh, Well, there is an investigation of him going on in Delaware. And yeah, I'm sure it's probably pretty awkward if you're in charge of that investigation. Like, what do you do? Do you charge the president's son? Um, Exactly. I was like, is is it a DOJ or FBI policy that if a a political candidate is running for office, then any corruption by his family members should not be prosecuted? It seems to me. Yeah, no, it's no, it's no, because obviously if a Trump family member was uh, engaged in corruption, they would have been charged. Uh, So this reflects this reflects the fact that it is just true that the national security state is politically now more in lockstep with Democrats than Republicans, uh, slightly more, I should say, because Republicans are still very much in. It depends like which wing. But basically, if you're a member of the establishment of either party, I think you're fine. If you're, if, you're, if you're someone like Trump, who they want to undermine, then yeah, then you're probably prone to being targeted. Yeah, I'm hoping for some journalists chasing the question with Mary Garland. Because uh, is yeah. that a policy, basically? Is, if this is truly a policy, if, then in that, in that case, if someone has money facing some corruption charges, then just announce he's going to run for office. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, that's ridiculous, right? So I wish some uh, journalists with guts to p- pursue that story, right? Because it's been three or four years, I think. Uh, that, uh, you know, his, uh, his laptop is very self-incriminating. And, uh, I mean, a regular folks probably is already being locked up in a pre, pre-trial, uh, uh, you know, incarceration thing, situation. And, uh, uh, one question for you, I'll be quick. Which, uh, geopolitical conflict you consider that has zero ethnic conflict as part of the conflict? Zero ethnic conflict. Yeah, basically, my theory is that every geopolitical conflict is an ethnic conflict. Right. I guess, but my only counter that would be that ethnic conflicts are exploited from the outside. So the ethnic conflict, for example, inside Syria, where you have, you know, uh, Sunnis or, or a, a group of Sunnis being used for a proxy war, that wouldn't have happened if not for intervention from the outside, like fueling them with you know, weapons and, and also sharing a lot of propaganda. So yes, ethnic divides certainly are exploited, but it's the, it's the interference of outside powers that I think make these conflicts uh, that much more, uh, more dangerous and deadly. Uh, so, Peter, in other, yeah. so in other words, each U.S. intervention outside of the territory of the U.S. is all have some kind of an ethnic conflict components in it. Is that right? Well, when the U.S. invaded Iraq, I mean, that, that was just the U.S invading a foreign country. Um, but then after the, you know, invasion happened, you, you did have an ethnic conflict, you know, uh, being triggered inside of Iraq where, you know, Sunni and Shia militias on the, on the opposing sides and, uh, the U S exploiting that for its own advantages. Um, and, uh, so yes, uh, usually in cases like this, you will always find ways in which outside powers exploit ethnic conflicts. Thank, uh, you, thank, thank you, Peter. Thank you. Uh, before I move on, uh, a attentive listener has sent me some information but that pertains to my discussion with Philip, who called in earlier from Ukraine. And I mentioned the Azov commander, Andrei Beletsky. And Philip, if you're still listening, you're welcome to call back in and respond to this. But uh, a caller pointed out to me that – so Philip said that Beletsky, the founder of Azov, has, le- has gone into exile. Um, but this is actually what the Wall Street Journal says. Uh, Mr. Beletsky left, in, left, left Azov in October 2016 to head National Corps a new right-wing party aligned with the Azov regiment. Mr. Beletsky is still actively involved with Azov, maintaining regular contact with its members 
and participating in their training. Uh, so that's from the Wall Street Journal from, I believe that was from 2022. Yeah, from June 2022. So that, that's the Wall Street Journal. So that would contradict what Philip said about Bolesky going into exile and no longer being a part of Azov. Wall Street Journal is saying that he's still actively involved. He just now nominally heads a political movement that is aligned with Azov, uh, but is still very much involved in in the training and activity. So thank you uh, for that information. I, I, uh, I didn't know that. Okay, uh, Amanda. Hey, Aaron. I appreciate you taking the extra time today. Um, I, my question is comes from watching the hearings with Matt Taibbi. Mm-hmm. And what occurred to me as I was getting more and more angry at how they were treating somebody who was being nothing but respectful, because I identify with Matt Taibbi, not just because he's a great writer, but I think we were born the same year. So I have like a special empathy, I think, for some reason. Like if my name was Matt, I might have special empathy. There's no reason for it. I just feel that. But why is Congress questioning the people who reported on the bad behavior rather than actually questioning the people that were doing the bad behavior? Great question. (laughs) Great question because they want it because they identify with censorship and spreading propaganda. Uh, and they don't want that to be interfered with. So they're accordingly angry at the people who are doing their job to expose that. Um, you know, it's crazy. Well, at least I don't, at least I don't seem to see it incorrectly because they just don't think that what, why are you not questioning the criminals instead of the people who reported on the crime? But yeah. you, I think you're totally right. Thank Great you. Question. I appreciate that, that perspective. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Hi there, Lysol. Aaron, how's it going? Good, thanks. Uh, first, I wanted to I wanted to give you your flowers with all the Seymour Hersh stuff and the serial reporting. I'm uh, I'm a huge fan. Thank you. And um, secondly, I'm not going to take up too much time, but I was curious. Um, so there was, I mean, I'm sure you probably caught wind of people in the comments yelling at each other about Bree and Matt Taibbi. And I was kind of curious, do you have a focus for when you'll be working on the Twitter files? Or are you just kind of like going to like browse around and see what, see what you find? Or what are you thinking? So I believe Matt told Bree that I, I'm, I'm, I'm working with him on this, right? Yep. Is that correct? Yeah. So, uh, you know, honestly, um, I'd love to be involved, uh, you know, like full time on this, but I just don't have the time, unfortunately, because I have to finish my book on uh, Russiagate and the Ukraine war and also my other um, areas of, of focus, especially the OPCW scandal. So I'm not going to have the kind of time that I'd like to help Matt out. But to the extent that I I, I can, I, I personally, for me, I'm interested in the Russiagate angle. Um, and he's already exposed so much about how basically um, – the, the actors behind all these Russiagate disinformation campaigns knew they had no evidence for calling all these uh, accounts on Twitter Russian actors and trying to get them censored, but they they pressured Twitter to go along anyway. Uh, and you know, I'm I'm curious about more evidence of things like that. And um, so that's what I'll try to find out, uh, but um, only with with limited time because unfortunately I just don't have the time to give to it that I would like to normally. Are there any uh, any specific elements of Russiagate that you're like, man, I can't wait to find out more about that when it comes to the Twitter files? Uh, not really. Um, 
Not really. And, and, and to be honest with you, those that I really want to find out, I'm not going to talk about publicly yet. <laughs> but, that, that makes sense. Ho- yeah, but, but hopefully, hopefully you will find an answer in the form of reporting uh, in the future. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay, thanks a lot for the call. Yeah, for sure. Have a good one. You too. And we're going to wind it down, but I have, a good, I have good news, everybody. If you want to continue the uh, chatting today, Michael Tracy, Michael Tracy will, be doing will be doing a call-in. A call-in. I'm going to mute you, Travers, for a second. Um, uh, we'll be, uh, Michael will be doing a call-in uh, right after this one wraps, which will be in a few minutes. So if you want to uh, keep the conversation going, go over to Michael's call-in uh, channel uh, called Gathering of Experts, where he will gather with you to talk right after this is done. Okay, uh, Travers, go ahead. And Travers, uh, you have to unmute yourself by hitting the button in the bottom left, I believe. Yeah. Okay. That that might have worked. Now, can you hear me? Or- yeah. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Excellent. Yeah. No, I just want. I was going to call in about Matt, um, but thankfully, uh, Sterling, who you were talking to earlier, said basically everything I would have said. So fair play to her. However, um, I am Irish, so I thought I should probably comment on the repeated um, conflagration your man was making between the Irish, the Irish War of Independence and Ukraine. Um, the big difference, and I can see where he gets that from, but the thing is, half of the country, as far as I can see, the Donbass, Crimea and all of that, they're kind of ethnically Russian. The Irish Civil War wasn't that. It wasn't one ethnic side against another. For freedom in the, I suppose I'll call it Ukrainian, but Western Ukrainian side, I can see where he's coming from trying to um, match it up with the Irish Civil War, but not quite the same. Ireland didn't try and take over parts of Scotland or parts of Wales or very divergent areas, if you follow me. That I makes do, sense? absolutely. I, yeah, I did. I do, absolutely. I, yeah, I did. I didn't accept the I didn't analogy, accept either. The analogy either. Unfortunately, Travers, we unfortunately, have Travers, a, we have a echo going. Oh, probably my phone, yeah. So I have to end your call there, but uh, thank you for calling in. And we'll take one more caller from Scott. Can you hear me better this time? Yes. Wonderful. And that was that. <laughs> Sorry, we lost Scott. Uh, all right. Uh, well, I'll give Scott a second to come back in. Uh, but if he's out, then uh, we're going to have to leave it there because I'm out of time. But luckily, everyone, Michael Tracy is going to start a call in right now. So uh, I encourage you to go over and join him and uh, keep the conversation going. He has a lot to say, especially about the display we saw this week in Congress or Democrats, one after the other, melting down uh, in defense of censorship, uh, all in the name of stopping Vladimir Putin. So go over to join Michael Tracy on his channel right now. And thanks to everybody for tuning in. I really appreciate it. And I'll see you next time. Bye, everybody.